Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. We have a particularly special episode for you this time. We're joined by the CEO of CF Benchmarks, Sweet Chung as well as myself, Ken, and uh, Gabe, the lead research analyst. Obviously, we have Sui Chung on the episode this time because of the FTX situation. Sui has written a blog post, which has been getting quite a lot of traction. We thought we'd uh, talk about it. Essentially, within the blog post, Sui talks about the FTX um, debacle, but also the potential impact on regulation. Sui, um, would you perhaps give us a bit of a synopsis of what you wrote? Yeah, of course, Ken. And firstly, thank you very much for having me on. It's really great to, to join you guys for this chat. In essence, what I believe is going to happen in light of the FTX situation is that it's going to accelerate regulatory scrutiny, accelerate regulatory implementation of, of regulations for the crypto service provider community. So often what people term as the crypto industry um, I think there will be, it will precipitate uh, further regulation. And that regulation will give everybody, not just those engaged in providing services for crypto underlying assets, digital assets today, but it will give regulatory clarity to all the requirements that governments will seek from uh, service providers in the sector. And that includes, of course, institutions that are not engaged in providing services against crypto assets, digital assets today. And so that means it gives the the regulatory clarity and the rules of the road for particularly the traditional financial institutions who have thus far only engaged in very limited numbers. But when that regulatory clarity comes, that is really the starting gun for institutions uh, traditional financial institutions engaging in the space. Just to frame it a little bit uh, better for people, I think what you were trying to say was rather than FTX explosion, Alameda, malfeasance, essentially putting off people, including institutions from the crypto space, rather you were seeing the possibility that um, regulators would likely step in, accelerate the plans, any plans that they had going on, um, and that would be an attractor rather than a demotivator of um, institutional adoption. Is that, is that pretty much it? Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, Ken. Thanks for that. Because to date, the number one impediment for traditional financial institutions to engage with the digital asset class is regulation, or rather the lack of it. The lack of regulatory clarity has been a big impediment 
And once that regulatory clarity comes in the form of regulation, in the form of legislation and regulation, then that really does open the potential floodgates. And as I said, would be the starting gun for traditional assets, uh, to traditional financial institutions to start engaging with the asset class. Yes. And Gabe, um, we were talking about this just before we started recording, but you had a really quite a, a salient and perspicacious uh, question regarding that. Could you just sort of like refresh our memories on that? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks, Sui, for uh, jumping on the podcast with us. So when we think about the crypto community at large, the term regulation with them is a bit like water and oil. So when, we, when we're talking about, you know, what we're seeing as far as a potential future, uh, you know, safeguards or regulatory improvements to help this institutional adoption trend, um, what do you think that's going to look like? What areas specifically do you think need to be regulated? That's a really good question, Gabe. And I think that, you know, the whole term crypto industry is not very helpful, right? And that's, and in a sense, it's part of the problem because the crypto adoption, um, digital asset adoption and the service providers who engage in the services, providing the services have grown very, very quickly in a very short space of time. And so four years ago, when CF benchmarks first began, the, the crypto industry was pretty simple. It was exchanges. It was Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, Binance, few others who offered the facility for users to trade, to swap one asset, be that it could be a fiat asset, it could be a digital asset for another digital asset, right? So trading through a central limit order book and that activity and, you know, millions of users flocked to those exchanges and the regulators, when they saw that activity, the first thing law enforcement regulators saw was the potential to impact the integrity of AML, KYC and counterterrorism financing uh, regulations and laws. And so, you know, very quickly, um, they mandated uh, MLKYC policies from crypto exchanges. Now, that today in the major jurisdictions is pretty much a sine non qua, is pretty well established that uh, crypto exchanges have those policies and processes in place. It's not 100% um, because obviously there are offshore based exchanges for whom the oversight of their implementation of such regulations is potentially questionable. It's, and certainly, I don't think I don't think I'm breaking any official secrets acts here when I say that exchanges based in the US and Europe are having to meet a higher standard and have greater regulatory oversight put upon them for ensuring that they enforce AML KYC regulations. So that was you know crypto 2018, 2019, 2020. When you fast forward to 2022, you have a plethora or services being provided. Services that look a lot like banking, for instance. Um, so we've seen that Celsius, uh, to a degree Voyager Digital, now Genesis Global Trading, these firms who are engaged in taking users' funds, promising them uh, a return, a yield, and generating that yield by effectively lending that crypto out. So effectively banking. And you have you know, all manner of services um, in between as well. And I think that the first thing about regulation, that you know, any potential regulation is, it's got to be very clear that you know, it's the activity, it's the underlying activity, and it's potential for increasing risks in the economy, uh, risks both in the digital economy, digital asset economy, and in the traditional economy, systemic risks. Running a central limit order book so that people can exchange assets does not create systemic risks. 
taking people's assets, lending them to people with shoddy or non-existent risk management practices obviously creates risks. Um, as we saw uh, in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, and then at the very extreme end, such as FTX, where you are purporting to be an exchange, where users you know leave their funds on the exchange purely um, for you to safe keep until they wish to trade them for other assets, saying that's what you do, when in actual fact you're engaged in lending to third parties and related parties. Let's not forget that the vast majority of the funds that FTX fraudulently, as, you know, is, because on the terms of use with FTX, let's be honest, it's fraud. On the terms of use, FTX's terms of use says we don't use your funds for any uh, other purposes other than to safe keep them until you want to trade them. Um, they took those funds, lent them to a, a sister company, a related party who share an ultimate controller, ultimate beneficial owner. That is the most extreme end. And I think that regulators, I hope that regulators will come in and firstly see that, number one, in the case of FTX, if people wish to act fraudulently and wish to wantonly break the law, then no amount of regulation is going to stop them. There is a question around how effective your law, your enforcement of regulations is, so you might catch it sooner. But quite frankly, you, you, you can't actually, no regulation is going to stop that happening. It might dissuade them being in a, in a harsher legal climate, uh, law enforcement climate might dissuade them from doing that, but you can't stop that. Then there's the, the piece around just you know, the banking-like services. I think that any form of banking-like services is very likely to face serious regulatory scrutiny. Regulators may very well seek to regulate that activity very heavily, just as they do the traditional banking sector. And we may see, in fact, prudential regulation come in for that sort of activity. Um, capital adequacy assessments, capital reserve requirements, et cetera, et cetera, just as we see in the traditional banking sector. And it's not also not beyond the realms of possibility that we see the ultimate form of prudential regulation uh, for that sort of activity, which is just the prohibition of providing that service if you are providing any of any other types of services just as we could see a sort of crypto glass steagall right glass steagall famously in the 30s in in the us which prohibited any deposit taking institution from engaging in securities activities right just a no just a hard no if you do that you can't do the other the volcker rule is a form of prudential regulation saying that if you are financial institutions if you're a bank with access to the Fed discount window, you will not engage in proprietary trading. So we may see in, in certain jurisdictions that sort of stipulation come in. Thank you very much for that, Sui. Uh, that was uh, really interesting and insightful, a good uh, roundup of the entire situation for the industry. One really pertinent question, which I think a lot of people would know, I'm certainly interested in, are you actually saying this will have an impact on institutional ado adoption going forward in the, in the medium to long term? Yes, yes, I think I am because because it's accelerating that um, action from regulators and governments. You know, the FTX situation is going to accelerate any plans they had to regulate. It's going to make very clear what the priorities for regulation are, which activities that are being provided require further regulation, which, you know, as we've seen from the resilience of some of the more established players like the Coinbase and the Krakens with the simpler, quite frankly, simpler business models, less risky business models where there's less um, that needs doing. And for those where it's highly opaque, 
where there's more risk being created, that's where you know, more uh, regulation is needed. And that clarity will mean it, it, becomes, it will become a, a, a lot clearer to banks, to asset managers, to different um, traditional financial institutions, what role they can play and from, from a value add perspective, but also from a regulatory perspective, you know, which regulations are they comfortable abiding by that they are set up to be able to abide by. And I think that's very important in terms of not only bringing more capital, more resources to the digital asset class, but also bringing the, the distribution capability of those traditional financial providers so that more investors, from mom and pop investors all the way to pension funds and all points in between, that these institutions do have the connectivity with today. They can bring uh, those investors that are not yet engaged with digital assets to the digital asset class. And I think that's really going to be the potentially big change that will be have been precipitated by FTX's collapse. You and I um, um, have been around in markets and the, the city of London, we're in the UK for some time. And we've seen you know, the development of regulation over different asset classes. This is going to be pretty much an impossible question to ask, but you know, there's no better person to ask it than, than yourself in this room. How long do you think we're going to see that take for that regulatory clarity to materialize? I actually don't think it's going to take very long at all because FTX was so high profile, particularly in the US, it had a very high political profile. It had a very high profile amongst lawmakers, amongst regulators. Sam Bankman-Fried had testified before Congress. He'd spun the political leadership of the US, this notion that you know, regulation should be of a certain type. Largely, um, most casual observers, most disinterested observers would say favored FTX effectively. And, and that has meant that you know, this is very much a hot topic on the Hill in the US because of Sam Bankman-Fried's profile, his political donations. You know, this is a man who has donated in excess of $35 million just for the midterm elections that have recently passed, predominantly to the Democratic side of the aisle. So because of all those things, I think that, that we're going to see this sooner rather than later. Not only must something be done, but something must be seen to be done. Sure. Now, if we can sort of like uh, broaden things out a little bit, there is a bit of, a bit of extra news, um, additional news, a follow-on news to the FTX situation related to contagion, of course. Um, and I guess the main topic of that is, is a particular, particularly prominent financial group within the, uh, the crypto industry, the digital capital group, and uh, its companies, particularly, of course, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, and additionally, the liquidity provider Genesis. Now, I know that there's a bit of a talk, we have to be really cautious and really careful, but there is a little bit of talk and a little bit of discussion in the Twitter sphere and also in the press about the, the solvency of Genesis. I wonder whether we could sort of get your take on that, Gabe. So yeah, what's going on with uh, DCG and um, Genesis is just another example really of how this is having potential spillover effects and liquidity crunches. So it was reported that they're needing to fundraise approximately, let's say, about a billion dollars over these next few days before, you know, they potentially will face a bankruptcy. So um, again, I think what we've been talking about throughout this podcast really is just kind of the same theme. And it's about um, what's going to kind of give a kick in the pants for regulators to start, you know, 
considering some serious options to put some guardrails in place in the industry, which is what Sui's been talking about. And what that's really going to bring, I think, is just is more confidence. So it's confidence on the institutional side. It's confidence to where if I'm an asset allocator, if I'm running an asset management shop and I'm considering putting you know, a Bitcoin fund or some sort of crypto fund on my platform, I'm going to have more confidence in selling this product to my customers, exposing my clients' monies to to these types of funds and these products. It's kind of like the same flavor of what was happening with FTX in a, in a sense, in a smaller scale, because there wasn't maybe so much outright explicit potential fraud that we're seeing as more news comes around um, involving FTX. But it's it's still this idea of of, of these uh, this contagion, this liquidity crunch, which is kind of spiraled from you know, the FGT token that was on Alameda's balance sheet, which triggered these withdrawals, which created that death spiral for FTX. Sure. We're seeing, we're seeing some exposure, uh, some FTX-like exposure without perhaps the malfeasance, you know, probability without the malfeasance, uh, but certainly the same impact on, on consumers um, due to um, the lack of certain control. But it's very, it's very typical whenever you have such a major player, which, you know, FTX International was, and all these subsidiaries, they they really played a, a huge part of this ecosystem. So we should expect that this is going to continue to kind of take some time to shake out. And that and but as we do, and what Sui is trying to you know highlight with his blog post is 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 lay that kind of runway ahead about building that confidence, about building that clarity, so institutional investors can feel more comfortable getting back into the space or entering the space to begin with. Uh, sweet. Um, I wanted to widen things and just maybe reach uh, finally the DCG uh, GBTC uh, part, whereby we know that the discount to net asset value uh, evinced by uh, GBTC is now regularly over the last few days above 40%. What should we be expecting to happen? Now, I expect my notion of, of GBTC, DCG in general, to be a well-run company running well-run um, you know, satellites uh, to basically still hold true. But when a, when a sort of fund reaches that level of um, discount to net asset value, starts having impacts, um, certainly implied impacts that we're starting to see um, in the markets, what is the sort of escape route in your view uh, from, from this situation? Yeah, that's a great question, Ken. And some of the, the first waves of, of failures that we saw, particularly from the, from the crypto neobanks like BlockFi, were actually caused by the GBTC discount, right? So, so there was the the GBTC premium trade um, that that we know that BlockFi was engaged in pretty heavily, as we've seen from their bankruptcy files. They still hold a lot of GBTC, but as you rightly said, when the discount is north of forty, touching fifty percent, you just won't sell the shares, right? Selling the shares will crystallize such a devastating loss to the balance sheet that that you wouldn't do that, and hence nobody. Uh, is doing that apart from the most desperate for liquidity, you know, trading at fifty percent discount and asset value, which is, I personally just cannot think of a discount for a fund who who that actually holds those underlying assets. I've never I've never encountered a, a, a nav discount at fifty percent, and the reason that nav, nav discount is there is because of GBTC's odd structure. It's a closed end fund, but i.e. there is a creation mechanism. You can create shares, you can give um, Grayscale your money and they will uh, give you shares. They will take your money, give you shares and go out and buy Bitcoins with uh, your money, put those Bitcoins in the fund, but there's no redemption. You can't give the shares back to them in exchange for either 
the bitcoins that are inside the fund, nor can you give the shares back and say, oh, my Bitcoin entitlement is X, price is Y, X times Y equals Z dollars. Can't do that either. And hence you have this discount. And I think that that structure is because it's, you know, that's what the, the fund articles say. That's what it is. At the SEC, they have petitioned the SEC on a number of occasions to try and flip the structure into an ETF structure so you can have creation redemption. It's been rejected. And, you know, where else is there for them to go? Well, the only option, the only v option of actually available is to dissolve the fund. So if, if as the manager and the trustees, uh, the board of, uh, of the trust, decide that in the interests of, of the fund holders, we should liquidate the fund and give everyone their money back, you know, i.e. take the Bitcoin, sell them uh, and give everyone their, the, the proceeds back, or they can take their, their, the proceeds in Bitcoin. You know, that, that is the only way out. But by doing that, GBTC, you know, Grayscale, by doing that with GBTC, Grayscale would be foregoing the management fee forever. They would be effectively killing their own golden goose. That's the dilemma they face. Um, not a very pleasant one. But also an interesting sort of second order effect of this is that GBTC is actually a acting as a pretty strong anchor for the, for the Bitcoin price. Because there's, I think it holds a couple hundred thousand Bitcoins. And of course, those Bitcoins are, are sort of stuck. They're locked into the, the fund. They cannot be sold. So there's a very large chunk of Bitcoin that will certainly not hit the market. Um, and that is acting as a little bit of an anchor for the Bitcoin price. Um, and, I, and I think to be fair to the, to the management of Grayscale, that is a non-zero consideration that, that potentially by winding down um, GBTC, they would be unleashing, potentially unleashing a lot of Bitcoin onto the open market that could make its way to be sold. And hence that would put further pressure uh, on, a, on an already very pressurized asset class and, and, and sector. So yeah, a lot of, lot of things for them to balance out. I don't envy them, but you know, fundamentally the structure is, is a very challenging one. A lot of uh, follow-on uh, sort of succeeding uh, issues following on from this massive debacle that uh, the industry has seen. The discussion could go on for a very long time. In fact, it will go on for a very long time. Unfortunately, uh, our time this afternoon is over. Um, I really appreciate uh, you, Sui Chung, for joining us. And of course, uh, Gabe, for uh, being with us as well. And uh, of course, for you guys for listening in too. Hopefully, we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much indeed for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. Thank you.